Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in German Studies. I'm Ryan Stackhouse. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Jasper Heinzen about his new book, Making Prussians, Racing Germans, A Cultural History of Prussian State Building After Civil War, 1866 to 1935. As the title reveals, Heinzen has written an ambitious history with a sweeping scope. Making Prussians traces how the citizens of Hanover related to a broader German identity over the seven decades following Prussian conquest. But Heinzen has also written much more than a national history. Making Prussians reframes the 1866 German war between Prussian and Austria as a civil war. By so doing, it places the subsequent nation and state building efforts in dialogue with similar struggles following the Swiss Sonderbund War, the Piedmont conquest of Southern Italy, and the American Civil War. As such, Making Prussians is speaking to a much wider interdisciplinary audience. Heinzen has as much to say to political scientists about the long-term trends in emerging nations forged through civil war as he does to historians of Germany specifically and Europe more broadly. Little wonder then that the foundation the book is based upon received the prize for Lower Saxon history. Making Prussians, Raising Germans is available from Cambridge University Press as of 2017, and we are fortunate enough to be joined by Jasper Heinzen today. So without further ado, Jasper, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Ryan. It's, it's a pleasure to be on your show and um, to talk about my book. To begin with, what brought you to the study of history? Yeah, well, I've actually been interested in history for a very long time that goes back all the way to my childhood. So when the, the wreck of the Titanic was discovered in 1985, I was five years old. And of course, I mean, I couldn't read at the time, but I still remember very vividly the pictures of uh, the wreck, and then later when the first artifacts were brought up a few years later, I remember seeing those pictures on you know, news uh, on, on journal covers, and uh, I, was, I became very interested in how the people that went down with the ship, but also the survivors, how, what, the, what they experienced and what they went through, and that kicked off my interest in history more generally. And yeah, so when I was from then from that point onwards, I was I was hooked. I knew I wanted to be a historian. And I pursued that uh, interest all the way through in my university studies. And of course, now I'm a, an academic historian. It sounds like the 19th century impression was made early on then. Yeah. Reading the acknowledgments to this, it certainly sounds like you have an interesting path into the topic of the book proper. How did you go from Japanese gardens in New Zealand to Prussian cultural history? Well, that's a separate story. So I did my undergrad degree in New Zealand. So I studied at the universities of Otago and then Canterbury. And those two universities are very strong in um, in Australasian history, but also uh, Southeast Asian history. And uh, so in my undergrad degree, I very much specialized in those two fields, particularly Sino-Japanese relations. And I became very interested in uh, cultural transfer, identity politics. And uh, then one of my former tutors uh, suggested we do a project together on Japanese gardens. And uh, 
yeah so from there basically i then decided um i wanted to go back to my roots um as you can tell from my accent i'm originally from from germany and so i decided to do something more to do with my well i guess personal history you could say and so um decided to come to the uk to do first a masters and then a phd in european history and yeah even that's not really the end of the story I initially wanted to do something on anglo hanoverian history and uh, my supervisor my phd supervisor suggested i work on the king on hanover as your listeners may know hanover and in england in the uk formed the personal union in 1714 so the the elector of hanover also became the the king of england george i and the hanoverians uh, sat on sort of this personal union was maintained for uh, for a very long time for um, 123 years from 1714 to 1837 so yeah as i was saying initially I was interested in this personal union but in increasingly realized that there's far more to hanoverian history than just the personal union and i became particularly interested in the in the war of 1866 when hanover joined the austrian side against prussia and austria and her allies lost including hanover hanover was then occupied and subsequently annexed by prussia and became a prussian province and so we came very interested in how the people in this province experienced the impact and how they tried to use their agency to shape the process of integration yeah so in the way the set the rest of history so this is well, this was the starting point for my book and i very quickly realized that many aspects of the hanoverian experience can also be seen in other countries and uh, in other countries that experienced civil war at about this time turning to the book now what is the message or the core argument that you want people to walk away thinking about the core idea is the core premise is that civil war is an important part of history we tend to think very much of national antagonisms national histories but we often forget that in you know in a sort of international conflicts and competition is in many ways just as important as conflicts between nations of course we only have to think of the war in syria the sudan um to see how destructive civil wars can be in some ways more destructive than regular interstate wars because it's far more difficult to call to put an end to civil wars and of course civil wars consist of different elements there's physical violence there's verbal violence and and even today we see in many parts of the world including of course europe in the united states we see polarization of political discourse and even though the 19th century is in many ways very different from the challenges and the civil wars we see i think some of the issues related and similar in particular the importance that people have historically attached to the concept of liberty and on the flip side the subjective feelings of oppression regardless of the often very different circumstances in which uh, civil wars in the past and also in the present take place and so this is what my book is trying to show how this very difficult process of negotiation and contestation responds to uh, larger larger Uh, developments and this is where the comparative dimension becomes important because we we see that prussian state state building uh, adopts certain techniques that are also used by other 
societies re recovering from, from civil war. And so I'm trying to show how Prussia as a state operates in this international context. But it's certainly striking uh, to see those parallels between those countries and how they evolve in parallel during the latter part of the 19th century and how this process of state building after civil war actually leads to, interesting enough, despite those parallels, leads to rather different outcomes. As we know, Germany, of course, descends into another bout of civil war in the 1920s, and then which ultimately, uh, of course, leads to the Nazi dictatorship. Uh, in Italy, too, we see uh, the fascists respond to the, the internal conflicts in, in Italy in their own way. They try to resolve those conflicts by force. Uh, whereas, of course, America and, and Switzerland respond uh, very differently and ultimately remain democracies. But So we see very different outcomes, but the point is those different outcomes shouldn't blind us to very interesting parallels between all four cases, which is another point. Something else I want to show very strongly is that state-building isn't a top-down process. State-building is a process of negotiation. The government has to respond to pre-existing identities, to what the people on the ground want. But by the same token, citizens have agency. They can accept what governments offer them, but they can also turn this into something new. So in that sense, state building, as I see it, is, a, is an interactive, dynamic process. On that note, your book primarily examines Prussian nation building in Hanover. Mm -hmm. Just briefly, what makes the region unique as we raise the curtain on 1866? Right. The, the civil war in Germany in 1866 is um, in many ways not acknowledged as, an, as, as a civil war as such. So historians have tended to consider, to treat this war as a, as a cabinet war, meaning a war between governments. Um, that was engineered by elites, by, by statesmen like Bismarck, um, the various governments of Germany, and of course also the Austrians. And there's a, you know there's a prevailing view that the the Civil War of 1866 wasn't actually all that popular. It was it was something that had to be done that made political sense, made sense in terms of raison d'état, and the 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 popular Bismarckian conception of realpolitik, but that the people didn't really support. So as I tried to show in my book, this interpretation of the war is actually in many ways misleading. There was a great deal of popular investment, emotional, political, and personal investment in the outcome of this war between Prussia, Austria, but also the very smaller German states that had to choose, had to pick a side. Those conflicts often had deep historical roots. They weren't that actually uh, related to earlier conflicts, to earlier traditions of civil war in German-speaking Central Europe, also to unresolved uh, social issues, for example, the interests, the rights and privileges of girls, the rights of the church, as opposed to the, the state-building agenda of the state. So I'm really, really interested in how those conflicts that existed in German society in the mid-19th century, ultimately, I wouldn't say were made to disappear. On the contrary, I'm trying to show in the book that those conflicts existed throughout the 19th century and continue to pose a challenge to state building from 1866 all the way to the Nazi period.
and that actually during this time, state building did the response to civil war, the legacy of civil war, the legacy of those conflicts I just mentioned, changes, it changes its meaning. But the conflicts themselves, they never really quite disappear. Well, no history that touches on Prussian culture would be complete without the army. So it is only appropriate that you begin there. But you focus on the relationship with the population, specifically this gradual transformation of the army from an instrument of repression to a bipartisan symbol of national unity. You style this process as rejection, acceptance, and normalization. Could you talk us through? Certainly. When we think of the army, think of the army probably as an instrument of, as as a socializing institution, an institution that shapes the identity of the soldiers. And so conscription became a, a mainstay of the military after 1815. Not just Prussia, but other German states introduced conscription, often on a very modest scale, but conscription nonetheless, which gave the military a, a different uh, identity. So from that point onwards, the military was seen as a people's army, as, as sort of as belonging to the people, was seen as a part of the social contract between the government or rather between monarchs and the subjects, the idea being that monarchs were seen as the protectors, as the uh, the representative of their state. But this meant that they had to sort of align themselves with the will of the people. And the military was seen as a sort of an, an, a, an institution that embodied the spirit of the people because ultimately as recruits, as conscripts, there weren't volunteers that were made to serve their country, their state, and and so increasingly conscription became a way for smaller states to foster their own what is called particularism. So particularism evokes various different meanings that relates to the idea of tribal identities. Uh, so governments, German governments in the early 19th century, for example, that promoted the idea of a convergence of state identity, for example, the identity of Bavaria, of the Bavarian state, and what they considered or what they promoted as a Bavarian tribe. Likewise, Württemberg associated itself, uh, co-opted Swabian identities. In the case of Hanover, for example, we see a confluence of Hanoverian identity and then lower Saxon tribal discourses. Uh, which became a way, again, for a way for the government to legitimize its rule and for the people to feel an attachment to their so-called small fatherland. And so we see that the state armies, in, in many ways, became a focus point for popular allegiances. And so in 1866, soldiers, conscripts that joined the war did so to protect their small fatherland. And so you can imagine that this clash of state armies left often a very bitter aftertaste. And the Kingdom of Hanover was one of the few states that actually managed to beat the Prussians that inflicted perhaps not an ultimately decisive victory, but certainly quite a bloody battle on the Prussians at Langensalza in June. And there are various accounts that show how committed both sides were to the battle, though it didn't shy away from fighting countrymen. On the contrary, they said, well, it is our duty to fight. We have to save the honor of our own army. But we also, as long as we fight, our families at home are secure. 
And so again, this shows the personal investment of soldiers in their armies. And so when Prussia ultimately managed to uh, defeat Austria and her allies and used this to, uh, to occupy and then ultimately annex uh, Hanover, this created various uh, problems and various dilemmas because Prussia as a state with conscription, of course, also had to extend the Prussian system of conscription to Hanover. But the problem was that people were so enraged and committed to their existing army that it wasn't very it became very difficult for Prussia to simply order conscripts to join the Prussian army. So this initiated a very long process of adaptation and normalization, you could say. But this took a long time and another war, so in 1870, 1871. So four years after the German war, Prussians and Hanoverians and all the citizens of the other states that were annexed by Prussia had to serve under Prussian colors, which was often very difficult because of the very different historical traditions and very different military identities. And as I tried to show, local attachments were in many ways more important than allegiance to Prussia or the nation. I tried to show that many conscripts who were called up in 1870, 1871, they continued pre-existing military identities that hadn't actually yet merged with Prussian military culture. And so that just goes to show that actually in many ways, 1866 wasn't really the end point of Hanoverian separateness. And in many ways, Hanoverian military identities continued on a different trajectory up into the 1870s and Prussia had to make an effort. And when I say Prussia, I mean the government, I mean the army, I mean you know the drill sergeants, I mean everyone involved in the army had to actually make an effort to integrate those new recruits into Prussia, into, into the larger Prussian army. So quite counterintuitively, I found that the army was became a focal point of popular allegiance, not because the drill sergeants were success, so successful, but on the contrary, because the army fostered comradeship, often in opposition to drill sergeants. And this notion of comradeship helped fuse Prussians from different parts of the monarchy and turned them, you know, fostered a sense of common Prussianness, a, a gave them a common language of symbols, uh, of experiences that helped to bring those very different parts of Prussia, Hanoverians, East Prussians, Silesians, everyone together. And this was very important because of economic, the, the problems caused by industrialization, so mutual help was very important. But it's also very important to remember that the German population in the 19th century was very mobile, especially after German unification in 1870, when it became possible for Germans to take up residence in any part of the German Empire. And so again, it became important for people to have a common identity, to have common foci of allegiance. And the army, in that sense, became this one of the, the common experiences, the common ground for those Prussians from different parts of the monarchy to bond. And this is what I mean by normalization, this process of increasing bonding and the development of a common discourse of loyalty, which didn't negate pre-existing identities, but often led to plurality of different identities. You certainly go into that in the next chapter where you're looking at the challenges for Hanover to integrate themselves. I mean, they're coming to the German project as a conquered state under Prussia. 
but your introduction to that chapter has this great line, remembrance of the right past could grant legitimacy, but the narrative had to be adaptable to win credibility. You cover a lot of material in this chapter with uh, memorials, public architecture, festivals, and of course, that slippery concept of HIMAP. But let's just start with the what of things to begin. Briefly, what narratives are being presented and how is it fitting with these aspects of urban space? Right. Yeah, I think the key point to start with is the existence of different memories, memories that relate to um, events that preceded the War of 1866 and historical narratives. I mean, the fact that Germany in the 19th century was very conscious of history and created various teleologies, various ways to interpret how the way things were had come to be. And so the 19th century was a period of uh, the existence of various parallel uh, teleologies, different ways of explaining what was uh, why Germany was the way it was, but also where it was heading. So when we think of history, or rather of memory, it isn't memory isn't, I think, and I think many scholars would agree, isn't really so much about the past. It's about the present and the future. You're trying to use the past to legitimize something in the present, but also you want to suggest where you're going from there. You want to move on. You want to either suggest that the way things are are good and you're moving towards something even greater. Or you can use the past to criticize the present and suggest that, well, if we keep, if we stay on this path, this will lead us to perdition, to, you know, destruction or any, uh, you know, various negative outcomes you can think of. And so those various narratives were circulating in, in Hanover and, of course, Germany more broadly. And people gave expression to those different historical narratives in, in different ways and in different contexts. And so in my chapter, I cover historical associations, I cover monuments, I cover, as you mentioned, urban architecture. And in general, I'm interested in institutions where memory is, is central to the identity of those institutions. And so to take the example of urban space that you mentioned, we have to remember that that Heimat evoked associations of localness. Again, there's a rich literature on the concept of Heimat and how it worked. Some historians have suggested that Heimat represents um, sort of the nation on a local level, whereas um, other historians have suggested that the two are interlinked or slightly separate, that uh, in order to, to have a nation, you need to first have a local identity. So there are different ways of conceptualizing Heimat, but the ultimate point here is that in order to have a Heimat, uh, you need to have a rooted local identity. And this was especially important in towns and in cities that had a distinguished history, either as a formerly free imperial city. So I mentioned the case of Hildesheim. And as an imperial city, you were only immediate to the emperor. So in that sense, having that imperial past gave you extra prestige, made you superior to other towns and cities that had a, a prince above them before. So being an imperial city gave you special privileges. Even after 1806, when the Holy Roman Empire was dissolved, imperial cities maintained their special identity and celebrated this and created architecture that reflected their proud history as independent towns and cities. Hildesheim is uh, one example. Certainly Hamburg 
even though it's uh, technically not a sort of it is of course a very important Hansa town, all those places celebrated their history and expressed their identity in public buildings. So when you look at the town halls of those uh, important cities, you can see they tell a story. They're very intricate. So I can highly recommend anyone that uh, visits Hamburg to to have a look, to take a close look at the city hall there, because the city hall is all about this story, the, the, the different composite histories that make up the whole history of a town and expresses the contribution of the town to the larger nation. And so this is what Heimat is about. It's about linking your local identity to the nation. And in urban space, this is, was often done very effectively. This was done to impress local denizens, to tell them how their town fit into the larger narrative, whatever narrative they were pushing. But it was also a way, of course, to impress foreign visitors and to promote tourism. And so memory and also the legacy of civil war that was part of German memory was part of this mix. It wasn't completely sidelined. It just simply had to be given meaning in the story of the German nation in relation to those various local identities that I just mentioned. You pay particular attention to the Heimat Museum in Hanover. What is it about the narratives that are being presented there that makes it such an interesting case study? What I'm trying to show is, in this chapter in particular, that um, contrary to what the historian Alan Confino has argued, he's argued that the legacy of civil war becomes sidelined in memory, is sort of pushed to the side in favor of a narrative of unity, of Heimat as a, as a unifying, as well as an agent of unification, symbolic unification, and so on. I'm actually arguing that this legacy of conflict, and also military conflict, you know, that the fact that 1866 wasn't the first war in which um, Prussians and, and Hanoverians had faced off uh, or had actually fought. In some cases, I mean, there, there's a rich history here of of uh, mutual co of cooperation as well as conflict between Prussia and Hanover. And those museums actually, in fact, didn't negate this legacy of division, but rather used it and actually proudly displayed trophies from those different conflicts. Um, so there's a sort of an interesting element here that actually the memory of civil war isn't sidelined. It is proudly displayed. It is part of the the uh, the of what museum of High, what Heimat the the activists that support Heimat pride. It is part of their identity and what they're trying to push. They're trying to remind people of the proud military traditions of their particular state. And in order to do so, they have to mention and acknowledge that those military traditions were often a, a result of conflict with other German states. And so in, in this chapter, I, I use various examples, and particularly the um, Bormann Museum in Celle, which was founded in 1897, so towards the, the, towards the end of the 19th uh, century, which uh, incidentally was also in the Heimat movement, in the organization of Heimat activism in discrete organizations also, uh, took shape. So at around this time, a local activist by the name of William Bormann gathers support for the creation of a Heimat Museum, which in fact becomes one of the premier Heimat Museums in Germany because of its diversity, its uh, success in uh, collecting items to do with local history, not just military ones, you know, anything, also peasant culture uh, and so on. Anything to do with the Heimat is exhibited in the museum. But there's also a military dimension to this. And, and so in this 
so I show that uh, in fact the legacy of of conflict with Prussia is is acknowledged as well, and Bormann is actually very successful at playing off the Prussian government against the exiled Hanoverian royal family that both lay claim to this legacy for their own reasons. Of course, the Prussians tried to control the narrative in order to promote Hanoverian integration, while the Hanoverian royal family supports Bormann because it wants to remind people of the association of Hanna with the Guelph dynasty. And so interestingly enough, Bormann quite successfully um, manages to get money from both institutions and even gets various uh, medals from the Prussian government without really ultimately, in a sense, picking a side. So as I, as I tried to show, Heimat actually in some cases meant, or that Bormann Museum shows this very well, shows that Heimat could actually be very vague and ambivalent and could actually offer different interpretations and different meanings to different audiences. And it was precisely this ambiguity that made it a great instrument of state building because it, great, it brought people together even when they weren't quite sure what it was that they were commemorating. That particular push-me-pull-you effect in the competition for public resources pops up again and again throughout this book. It's it's interesting dynamic to revisit later, but I, I didn't mean to interrupt. Where were you headed? <laughs> no, just wanted to add, and it's just a, a short point, that this dynamic of ambiguity is in many ways um, also you know evident in other countries, especially when we look at America and the way the, the American Civil War is commemorated. There's often a lot of ambiguity attached to mem- monuments that commemorate, for example, famous southern southern leaders. You know, various parts that are sort of left out of the, of the narrative, other things that are pushed into the foreground that actually weren't necessarily there at the time of the Civil War. So I'm just basically just emphasizing the point here that the mastery of memory in some cases just requires ambiguity in order to make it stick. Hmm. Well, on the subject of the battle for hearts and minds, you turn to the public sphere. You find the government could manage narratives by controlling reading sources, but the success of any propaganda depended on matching a receptive audience. Let's start with the press in this. How is government intervention there changing over time? There's a lot to say here. Clearly, public opinion is important to any government. In the 19th century, the media available to governments was, of course, more limited than it is today. The public sphere was um, very much, certainly when it comes to um, printed sources, was restricted to books and to newspapers and journals. But in order to to control this, um, governments, of course, introduced censorship, but those media also required literacy. So in order for people to consume books and journals, they had to be literate. Prussia was quite a, uh, quite a literate society as a whole, had uh, started to invest in public education already in the 18th century. Hanover was a bit more of a latecomer in that respect, and we actually see important uh, regional differences in, in terms of literacy. And it's important to remember that on the whole, Hanover is, is quite, quite rural. You have important urban centers. But on the whole, it is a very um, rural part of Germany, um, and, and certain parts of the kingdom were the kingdom of Hanover were in fact very isolated, particularly East East Frisia, which even today is actually quite difficult to to, to reach by public uh, transport. And so yeah, so literacy was one challenge. 
And literacy could be important, could be useful, because a literate society could also be, a, in a sense, could be more productive, certainly helped the process of industrialization. But literacy also posed certain challenges, in particular that, that people could choose what to read and that they could consume literature that the government considered subversive. So until 1848, the government, most governments, the Prussian, the Prussian government certainly, but also the Hanoverian government, used pre-censorship. So anyone that wanted to publish something had to present an issue, be it a book or, or, or uh, you know, a newspaper, to the authorities and get their approval. But as a result of the 1848 revolution, the government changes its position and places the owners on the basically the publishers. So they have to put up a bond and they are not required to submit uh, uh, copies of their publications to the authorities, but they can be prosecuted for what the government uh, can consider public nuisance or slander, and they can also then lose their bond. So censorship changes as a result, and the government is sort of attentive to those changes and actually tries to also actively tries to influence what people consume and what they think and, and know about Prussia. So this chapter in particular looks at the two media I just mentioned, books and newspapers, and it focuses on the government's press policy, particularly the establishment of a press bureau in Hanover and in other provinces, uh, as well as sort of a central press bureau in uh, in Berlin, which actually produces uh, digests um, and pieces for, for newspapers in the provinces. And so in this chapter, I mean, this part of the chapter, I then go into the challenges that this presents because, yeah, well, you can openly influence the newspapers, but then your readers will know where the information is coming from. So it might actually, in that sense, be counterproductive to influence the media because it makes you a, a target of criticism. It also sometimes forces governments to then publish corrections that they weren't prepared to make or hadn't anticipated. And so, yeah, so sort of covert media manipulation in that sense can be very tricky, can actually backfire. Actually, increasingly what we see is the government go, shifts away from sort of open manipulation towards uh, voluntary collaboration with newspaper publishers because it is mutually beneficial to work together. It's important to bear in mind that newspapers and governments were, didn't necessarily pursue antagonistic goals. Newspapers, for example, needed access to privileged information, whereas uh, governments um, needed you know, positive publicity. And so that created common ground. And in the Prussian case in particular, sort of from the late 19th century onwards, we find that uh, the government is actually quite effective at fostering those relationships with uh, publishers. This is also beneficial for the government because it means it has to invest less money in manipulation because, you know, when you have to produce, when you have to bribe journalists, it costs money. So it's far more cost effective to simply find means of cooperation and collaboration with publishers. Actually, Prussia didn't really, even though we, we tend to think of Prussia as a very authoritarian state, actually, when we look at its media policy, it was actually surprisingly moderate and quite surprisingly adaptive. And also, it wasn't as as effective as later historians often like to believe. An area where the government is sort of more openly dirigist and more manipulative than in the newspaper sector is when it comes to books, particularly public libraries. Increasingly, the government actually invests in public libraries. In Hanover, the Prussian government actually creates a lot of new 
public libraries this way, small ones, small traveling libraries that are given to local dignitaries. And they often have a very um, specific selection of books, much of them focused on Prussian history and are very much focused on familiarizing and giving people background knowledge about what it meant to be Prussian. And there are about 700 of those, as I may have mentioned, uh, but over time, Prussia again moves away from open manipulation to a model that is more collaborative and more focused on um, partnerships with civil society uh, entrepreneurs that are setting up their own uh, libraries. Um, there are also various societies that promote good public reading. I mean, it's important to remember that the 19th century is all, late 19th century is also a period of reformism, you know, an attempt by civil society, by various groups in society to reform and to alleviate the ills of industrialization. And those various interest groups often come together in order to promote cleaner living. They say that, for example, getting the population to read is a good way to keep them out of pubs, to keep them away from uh, drinking. And so again, we see that the government can actually use those, it sort of is able to harness this willingness on the part of civil society to promote public libraries as a way to actually serve its own agenda. But again, it's not something that simply is imposed top-down, but as a lot of negotiation is required to make this work. The education system is another one of these interesting battlegrounds. As you put it, quote, the legacy of civil war was so complex because political grievances overlapped with other bones of contention, such as rights of church and traditional autonomy of local government and public education. Once again, you're breaking all of this down into a two-part process. First, from the Civil War up to 1890, and then on through the First World War. Could you talk us through the emergence of patriotic education and how the later inclusion of homeland resolves remaining tensions? Well, I guess it's open to debate whether those tensions are ever completely resolved. I guess the, what, what patriotic education was trying to do was very much to channel those existing conflicts towards productive ends. And so initially, again, Prussia wasn't actually that unique. Prussia had to find a way to, to integrate the Hanoverian education system into the Prussian one very quickly. Um, you know, the annexation of Hanover happened within four months of the German war. So that didn't give the, the, the Prussian authorities a lot of time to prepare for anything. And the main goal, of course, was to create loyal subjects. And so this was, from, of course, from the Prussian perspective, uh, which you know, leads to debates within the government. Um, Bismarck is actually surprising. He's not a hawk, so he's not suggesting we need to Prussianize annexed populations wholesale. He's actually very respectful of uh, local identities. But there are others in the government actually that do push for um, more you know, dramatic reforms that really want to um, fully standardize and fully adapt the Hanoverian system, education system, to the Prussian one, which leads to various conflicts, and I, I do discuss them, particularly when it comes to uh, textbooks. The Prussians understandably try to um, limit the number of textbooks and to, to only use textbooks that conform with textbooks that are used in the rest of the, the monarchy or are similar in some way. But this uh, actually sparks off a whole and a drawn-out debate in Hanover. There's uh, a lot of pushback from various interest groups in society 
that actually do oppose the government's attempt to impose standardization. Because education, and this is still very much true today in Germany, is actually very decentralized. So historically, education is very much the business of, of local states, but even more so, I mean, certainly in the 19th century, of local communities. So local communities were often free to choose their own textbooks. And you also have various you know, local school boards and so on, and they're often those school boards and the publishers of textbooks uh, often work together with teachers. So teachers had to produce, often produce their own textbooks that were then marketed and sold to other schools. And so teachers had an incentive to uh, write popular textbooks, but by the same token, there was resistance to adopt other textbooks that didn't uh, serve the interests of the local teachers and the school boards, because again, you know, there were financial stakes involved. As 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 the author of a textbook, you could actually, you know, uh, stock up your income by making money uh, from uh, textbooks. And if then the government decided to get rid of your textbook, then of course that restricted that uh, limited your income. And so there are various reasons why interest groups were actually opposed to a standardization of education, which made it very difficult for Prussia to um, promote a common state identity. And initially, it's sort of, it is very um, unimaginative, tries to, you know, make people uh, sort of appreciate their Prussian fatherland. But again, there's pushback. And so as I try to show, increasingly as we move on and also increasingly as the Kaiserreich becomes consolidated, people accept that it is there to stay. Local pedagogues are actually suggesting ways to make patriotic education more fitting and more in keeping with the needs of society. And so I mentioned in particular, I discussed the case of August Tecklenburg. He's, he's not a well-known figure on, on a national level, but he's well-known as a reformer in Hanover. And what he does is he, he um, tries to find ways to teach cultural history as opposed to the history of great men and the history of the dynasty. And so he suggests that Heimat, the idea of Heimat is actually a good way to make patriotic education work. So he's pushing for the integration of pieces about local history in textbooks. And importantly, and I think this is certainly from my perspective, his seminal contribution, he actually proposes a new way to conceptualize the integration of Hanover in, in the way it is taught in schools. And so he suggests that at one point, yes, Hanover may have been the home of a Lower Saxon tribe, but since 1866, Hanover having become part of Prussia, in his, his eyes, led to the creation of a new tribe. And so he's suggesting that the idea Stammlich identities in Germany, or in this case, since he is Hanoverian, the Hanoverian, the Lower Saxon slash Hanoverian tribal identity actually isn't the result of sort of a long history. It is actually the result of the fusion of Hanoverian traditions and Prussian ones, which creates and leads to the emergence of a new tribe. And so he tries to show this, how, how Hanover, the history of Hanover and Prussian history have sort of come together and have become sort of interwoven to form one fabric, as it were. And this creates a model. So Heimat history, this model of using Heimat to make the nation and also to make the Prussian state palatable to local people, people on the ground, becomes you know quite a popular model. So from the early 20th century onwards, Heimat history becomes sort of a mainstay of patriotic education throughout Germany. But 
actually, as I, as I suggest, again, this isn't actually uniquely German. We find similar trends in an attempt to use local history to legitimize national narratives in actually all the other countries that I uh, cover in my book. Chapter 5 turns from the male-dominated spheres of 19th century life to examine the mobilization of women for patriotic causes through philanthropy in four nursing organizations. Now, this was this push-me-pull-you effect that I was talking about earlier because you talk about the competition for public funds. Mm -hmm. I have two questions here. First, could you tell us about how women were mobilized? And then second, how do we get from descriptions of the Prussians as Protestant Jesuits to, quote, joy and gratitude at being permitted to participate in the great cultural mission of the fatherland in Africa? <laughs> um, okay. Um, yeah, there's probably a lot to unpack here. Yes. What, I, what I'm trying to show in my chapter really is that... Um, you know, the other socializing institutions, when we think of state building, we think, certainly in the 19th century context, probably we think of it as a very masculine, a very male-dominated activity. But as I'm trying to show in this chapter, it's actually wrong to exclude women from our discussion of state building. Actually, they played a crucial role. And Hanover is an interesting case because there were various existing women's organizations or, or institutions that were led by women, particularly charities, that uh, were closely affiliated with the uh, the Guelph regime. So the Hanoverian royal family was then exiled by the Prussians in 1866. And of course, when that regime change happens, then very much confounds the leaders, the female um, members of those organizations. And so the quote you mentioned of the Jesuits. So this quote is uh, at the beginning of the chapter, and it was uh, made by... Uh, one of the leading female representatives of those, one of those charities. This female representative um, had uh, close links to the the Guelphs, and for for understandable reasons, she she completely opposed the annexation, and and yeah, and just felt that the annexation was a um, an act of aggression, an unwarranted act of aggression that actually should be reversed. So I think, that, but before I go further with this, I probably should explain the, the place of women in Hanoverian, but also more generally in Prussian society. So, of course, women didn't have the vote, so they couldn't just go to the ballot box and say, well, you know, um, they couldn't just vote for parties that reflected their political beliefs. They also, of course, weren't really part of, uh, of the military, for example. Also, when it came to education, women's access to education was was limited. Yes, of course, women boys and girls had to attend primary school but beyond that it became more difficult for, for women to um, gain further education so again women's access to that was a bit limited but there were spheres in which women were actually very powerful and very influential and one of those spheres was charity and we have to bear in mind here that this was long before social welfare and the introduction of social insurance and the state at, in the early 1970s certainly wasn't actually that um well developed and didn't actually have too many didn't have resources to support social welfare so a lot was really up to to local initiative to the citizens and so this was a fierce sphere where women particularly bourgeois women were very active and partially in response to uh, the all the the suffering caused by the by the napoleonic wars but we also need to remember that the early 19th century actually produced a religious revival in germany 
And so the two things came together. Uh, women, uh, particularly religious women, uh, sort of uh, thrived on this religious revival and they felt they had to contribute, they had to be active. They couldn't just sort of live their faith passively. They had to do so actively through good works. And this applied both to Protestant women and to Catholic ones. And yeah, and, and, and as a result, we see sort of an efflorescence of uh, various organizations, charities in particular, dedicated to nursing and, and helping the poor. And they are sort of the early, the pioneers of female activism. They pick up on infrastructure that was developed during the Napoleonic Wars. Women's organizations were set up at the time to promote wounded soldiers, so to help wounded soldiers and uh, to support the war effort. And so the, the existing infrastructure um, sort of sets a precedent that women's organizations in the early 19th century then work on. They're not trying to emancipate women politically. They're simply trying to use women's nurturing qualities, as they interpreted them, for the benefit of society. And so in the Catholic Church, female orders take off, come, become very popular. Um, certain and, and Protestant, particularly the Lutheran establishment in Prussia, especially in the Western provinces, but also in Hanover, actually learns from the Catholic experience and say, well, why don't, why, why don't we do something similar? Um, there are various theological differences um, in how good works are interpreted. Uh, I won't go into those. But there are various sort of complications for Protestants that make it difficult for them to simply adopt the uh, Catholic model wholesale. But certain pioneers, particularly a uh, Theodor Friedner, he's a, he's a man, but he's a... Uh, somebody who um, recognizes the benefit of female charity early on. And so he adopts the idea of the Catholic mother, mother house to promote female deaconry. And again, female deaconry, deaconry is, is a sort of a seen as, as a way to channel women's religious passions because they are religious institutions. But at the same time, those religious passions are put at the service of society. So those mother houses then train nurses that help poor or the sick, and they also provide nurses that, for example, go into local communities, can support them, and also can, you know, help feed um, some, you know, people in need, so to do various social uh, uh, things that help society. Initially, that activism is very much tied to royal patronage, and this brings us back to this point to, to 1866 and the fact that existing institutions in Hanover felt a strong sense of attachment to the royal patrons, the Royal House of Hanover. And as you can imagine, the defeat of Hanover and the, the dethronement of the Guelphs and the uh, the forced enforced exile of the uh, Hanoverian royal family sort of creates a sort of a very strong myth, a sort of a, a perception of the Hanoverian royal family as martyrs, martyrs on the throne of um, well, of course, of federalism, so they're seen as, you know, defenders of the rights of religious institutions. They're also seen as sort of defenders of a decentralized Prussian, as a decentralized political nation. But also increasingly, as a result of the experience, they're also, they're also seen as religious martyrs, as people, as upright, morally upright people that are forced into exile by the devious Prussians that use, you know, um, force to conquer innocent societies and exploit them for their own needs. And so, based on this very, you know, jaundiced view of Prussians, um, it's actually not that easy for the Prussian government to simply win them over. 
And bear in mind here that those organizations that I mentioned actually perform value, valuable service. So the Prussian government and also not just the government, but also local municipalities, for example, they can't afford to antagonize those institutions because they are so valuable. But at the same time, their continuing allegiance to the Hanoverians creates problems. And so in my chapter, I'm trying to trace how the two sides of the charities, but also the state increasingly find ways of working together because this happens because conflict, particularly competition between Catholic female charities and Protestant female charities actually becomes stronger. And so they are competing, Catholics and Protestants, they're competing for patrons and they're competing for, um, (laughs) well, ultimately for patients. And so they sort of, their, their competition in a sense, benefit state building because then they have to find ways of winning the favor of local authorities. You know, they try to win contracts effectively. They each try to win a contract to, for example, set up a a station, a branch in various towns. And and so in that sense, the, the competition between the two actually makes it then possible for the authorities to use patronage as a way to, to convince, especially Guelph charities, that they actually that the Prussians can be trusted, and that in some ways they're just like the Hanoverian royal families. So we actually find that the Prussian royal family, and of course they're also the Imperial German royal, uh, Imperial family, that they actually in many ways adopt the same methods to sort of imitate, you know, use the same methods to show their trustworthiness. For example, gifts they make to to charities, also the way they talk and and the way they um, sort of promote. Their patronage is in many ways very similar to what the Hanoverian royal family is doing. And so the Hanoverian royal family and the Prussian royal family actually are increasingly competing for the affections of those 12 women, and actually quite successfully so, as as I demonstrate. So those 12 charities, they never really cut ties with the 12s. They still sort of, you know, maintain, put them on a pedestal and, and treat them as martyrs, but at the same time, they increasingly accept that working with the Prussian government is actually beneficial and can ultimately serve society at large. And and so this is how the Henriettenstift, one of those charities, actually becomes involved in uh, colonialism, in um, the consolidation of the German colonies in Africa. And incidentally, they actually also send nurses to uh, to the British Empire, to India. So they're actually not just exclusively serving Germany there, but on the whole... Um, they make the, those charities make their peace with Germany, and as I show, they actually become increasingly reliant on on the government for patronage, and the government does so by again just continuing to play off different charities against each other, and in this way, in this way, enforcing their their loyalty to the Prussian state. As we near the end, you examine the tumult of the Weimar Republic, culminating in the rise of Nazism. Hmm. Specifically, you begin by looking at how competing territorial claims are contributing to the resurgence of civil war in 1919. At the same time, they're taking on new dimensions under democratic republicanism. So this one was really interesting to me because a lot of the historiography I'm dealing with treats the failure of Weimar through the lens of territorial insecurity and resentments that are being seeded by the Treaty of Versailles. Mm. But here you're arguing that it's the unceremonious collapse of the Kaiserreich that's shifting criticism from the monarchy to Prussian domination within Germany more broadly. 
Can you explain how you're tracing this through the separatist movements for territorial reform? Yeah, certainly. I think the impact of the First World War is very important to understand here. Um, so for much of the Kaiserreich, the process of, of integration is actually quite successful. As, as I mentioned before, parties, various activists find ways of actually making the conflict the legacy of civil war actually come together sort of in a way that actually enhances integration. But this, uh, those compromises sort of unravel during the First World War when the idea of the Volksgemeinschaft, which uh, becomes this utopian vision at the start of the First World War, uh, slowly disintegrates um, in the middle of the war and then you know, completely fails towards the end, uh, when increasingly it becomes obvious to... Um, society that actually well germany isn't really that unified as a you have you know winners and looters you have, you have four profiteers certain families suffer more than others and so there's a lot of resentment uh, in german society um and the blame is often laid at the doorstep of the prussian government because the prussian government becomes uh, you know assumes control of the war effort very early on and sort of leads and uh, controls the war economy. And so the government actually makes decisions, the Prussian government makes decisions that actually have very uh, detrimental effects on Germany and, and actually produce a lot of suffering. And so quite naturally and understandably, uh, people then argue that, well, if the Prussian government is that irresponsible, why should, we, why should we remain part of Prussia? And again, this is actually, or why should we accept Prussian domination of the German nation. And this is where we then, at this point, we then see the emergence of separatist movements or, let's say, groups that actually challenge the primacy of Prussia. Of course, you know, in the wake of the First World War, there are various forces that are competing for political influence and for control. Of course, there's, you know, a civil war with various uh, communist uprisings, um, which is slightly sort of is a related story, but not entirely central to what I'm trying to show. I'm simply, in terms of my argument, I'm showing that the end of the First World War, if you will, forces people to reopen some of the compromises that had previously reached about the acceptance of Prussia as sort of the dominant German power. And so states outside of Prussia, in Bavaria in particular, various groups that actually then try to uh, or, you know, uh, campaign for change, we also see um, uprisings, especially in the western provinces, where actually um, in the Rhineland in particular, where activists actually campaign for complete, for independent statehood for the Rhineland. But there's that sort of an extreme case. In the case of Hanover, you have a secessionist movement that simply lobbies for secession from Prussia. They're not lobbying for secession from Germany, simply from what they see as the culprit of their, of their problems, the Prussian government. Initially, and I should mention this probably just to explain, so after 1866, there's a very strong opposition movement in that continues to, to exist into pretty much, you know, well into the 20th century, an opposition movement that lobbies for the, the, the recreation of Hanoverian statehood, and they're called the Guelph, the Guelph movement. They actually formed their own party in 1869. Initially, they're quite successful, but you know, over time, as the Kaiserreich consolidates, they lose members. They increasingly do less well at the polls. But 1918, they see another chance to campaign for Hanoverian statehood, and so they canvass support 
And in, initially, uh, actually, various uh, parties, parties that previously had supported the government, actually agree well that it might be you know that actually the time perhaps was right to create an independent state. But due to uh, the various problems facing Germany at the time, mostly economic ones, and of course the the civil war and partial occupation of Germany. As a result of that, nothing really comes of those early plans to uh, to turn Hanover into an independent state in Germany. But they, the Guelphs don't give up. They continue to lobby. They continue for a referendum in 1924. And even, even though this referendum again isn't successful, they keep going. Basically, what I'm trying to show is that spatial identities, the attachment to place, the idea of Heimat, actually comes to the fore again. Heimat in the Kaiserreich was a, was an agent of bonding because it was very ambiguous and ambivalent and offered you know offered space for sort of to, to, to agree to disagree. But after 1918, I argue that the Heimat actually becomes very divisive, becomes a way for different activists to come to, to lobby for to, to lobby for secession. And in other people that oppose secession also use the language of Heimat just in a different way. So for that reason, Heimat again comes to mean different things. But in this case, Heimat is sort of seen to to, to legitimize different perspectives. Basically, this chapter then asks and investigates how um, Reichsreform, so the territorial reform of Germany, how this debate continues to unfold and why it actually never really happens. This attempt. It comes to the fore as well in the 1920s to define Heimat and also to define the germination in increasingly racial terms just opens a new can of worms because we tend to think of race as something that is directed against outsiders. Race is in that sense seen as something that sort of um, sets Germans apart from perceived others, be they Jews, be they um competing nations, be their Poles, for example. I think what we often forget, and this is what my chapter is showing, that, well, actually, Germans were also doing othering, well, so othering each other. So in Hanover, we see the emergence of a very strong racial discourse, which tries to, to other, particularly the East Albion provinces um, centered on Berlin and argues that they are actually quite Slavic, they are not properly German. They are sort of a, a, a Mongol. Prussians in the eastern provinces are sort of a Mongol population that actually in that sense isn't actually can't be fully trusted. They are not entirely German. And so, yeah, this racial discourse again makes this debate about Heimat and territorial reform even more divisive because, yeah, it's, it's no longer just about political rights. It's actually seen this whole debate is sort of elevated to the level of an essential level of existence. So there's a territorial reform increasingly becomes about ethnic identities that are struggling for survival. So lower Saxons are arguing, well, we need to preserve our lower Saxon identity against competitors. And this also means not just against Prussians, but also other tribal identities in other provinces, for example. And activists can never really reach consensus on where those tribal areas, uh, where they sort of uh, exist and where the boundary lies between them. And so those debates, they continue to, to, to fester and to, to persist all the way through the 1920s. And then I tried to show that ultimately the Nazis um, resolved territorial reform by force, uh, first by taking over the government in Prussia by force through a coup d'etat, sanctioned by the national, by the federal government, 
And then under the, um, of course, once the, the Nazis have seized power, they then actually completely dissolve the federal structure. They create their own structure, their own political um, order. You know, they, they introduce Gauls so or party-based administrative districts. They actually send uh, agents appointed by the, uh, the the federal government, Reichsstatthalter, to different parts of Germany that, again, completely undermine the existing federal structure. So at this point, the whole edifice, the federal edifice, completely dissolves into, well, into chaos, pretty much. As one might expect with a book of this scope, you end with what your findings have to say about the special path thesis. The Sonderweg argues that Nazism was the product of a partial modernization where industrialization was not accompanied by political reform. You're in a unique position because you can weigh in on this debate with a comparative perspective that is accounting for the experiences of three other states that also experienced civil wars. So mm. please, what did you conclude? Um, this was actually my most challenging chapter because I felt the arguments I'm adv advancing here are quite ambitious and also because it covers questions that are in, in many ways very contentious, particularly the the category of race is very important here in this chapter. And I think the important point is we find that societies that have undergone civil war sometimes externalize conflict. They project their own disagreements onto others, onto um onto onto scapegoats that they hold responsible for the the conflict in their society. And so, as I'm trying to show here, actually, the whole territorial question in, in Germany that I've just uh, uh, discussed, then also uh, increasingly connects with the question of anti-Semitism, because scapegoats, uh, because Jews are sort of become the scapegoats of the Nazis, as uh, to explain the travails of the German nation. And what I'm trying to show here, it is interesting that um, actually. The Nazis carry out the Gleichschaltung, so the absorption of the the powers of various of trade unions, but also the power of federal states that do that first. And once they have achieved that, it is certainly interesting that it is only at this point, once they have completely absorbed and sort of contained territorial conf conflict in Germany, that at this point then they can then focus on their anti-Semitic project and they sort of then start on the wholesale um persecution of Jews and introduce the racial laws in 1935. So that is, you know, one point for me here. So the, the othering of scapegoats, conflict within society, that they're closely interconnected. And as I tried to show in the chapter as well, this isn't actually uniquely German. We find, of course, in the American case that race is very dominant here too. But of course, it's a different group that is being targeted, in this case, African-Americans, uh, that actually also are sort of become scapegoats for the problems that, even after the Civil War, for the continuing problems of political integration between North and South America. And in the Italian case, we find, again, there's sort of an interesting parallel here with the American one, in the sense that there's sort of a, a cultural divide between Northerners and Southerners. Again, Southerners are very much blamed for the problems, the so-called backwardness, as people put it, as Northerners see it, of Italy. In that sense, persecution sort of almost goes hand in hand, I think, with the experiences of civil war and the legacy of civil war in the three countries that I just mentioned. 
Switzerland is a bit different, as I showed. Switzerland actually, um, as a nation, reinvents itself and shifts its focus from war, from conflict to one of peace. And, of course, Switzerland at the time is already internationally a neutral nation. So, you know, after 1815, Switzerland was forced to be a neutral state because it is so strategically important. So none of the great powers really want any of the other great powers to control Switzerland. And so Switzerland is politically neutral in international politics, but internally, of course, well, we do see that it does uh, go to war in 1847, to civil war, uh, and there's even even there's sort of a war scare in 1850, 1856 against Prussia. So there's a tradition of war in Switzerland, but interestingly enough, this narrative shifts after the civil war and it increasingly becomes focused on humanitarianism, especially once the Red Cross is, uh, is established in 1864, Geneva Convention is passed. And so at this, at this point, then, the, the Swiss nation builds its national identity very much on this humanitarian imperative. And it also develops ways of actually linking different parts of society the different interest groups, be, be they religious, be they political, be they social, they all become entwined through interlocking structures in the Swiss case. And this combination of, of integration of an integrated society, as well as this the soft power, if you will, of humanitarianism, I think explain why Switzerland actually goes a rather different way and actually manages to avoid I wouldn't say that there was no scapegoating, but certainly there's nothing on the scale of the other powers. Simply because of this this combination of the two factors, I think there's a different way than the other three states. Does that have something to do with the scale of the conflict, do you think? Because you measure deaths per capita involved in the war at the beginning of the book, and Switzerland is much smaller than you know, either Italy, but certainly the German war, and then definitely the American Civil War. Yeah, that's a good point. It could be, it could be that the size, the, the number of casualties has an impact. Probably, you know, this is very, very likely that does have an impact on uh, peace building afterwards. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't buy into this wholesale because I think civil war, and this is sort of also an important point I'm trying to make, can the impact of civil war can't necessarily be, be measured by by figures, by, by by the number of people that die. It's, it's more because civil war is very passionate. It's about passions and a willingness to effectively kill countrymen. So there's a very high threshold. You know, it is higher than in, in, in interstate wars. I mean, it takes more to enter into a civil war on an emotional level than it does to engage in war against an external enemy. So I think in that sense, in, in the Swiss case, we find that, yeah, the number was perhaps, the number of casualties was low, but I wouldn't say that, that this reflects a lack of commitment to the issues that fueled and drove civil war in the first place. And, and I think it's just in the Swiss case that there's less aggression. I think that is that is actually, that needs to be acknowledged. There, there's certainly less aggression in the Swiss Sonderbundkrieg, kind of actually both sides are relatively respectful of each other. And as a result, there's probably more patience. I think that's probably an important point here, that in Switzerland, the changes, the political changes that lead to the, the emergence of the new Swiss, of the, the modern Swiss state, are actually very gradual. It takes a very long time for 
Switzerland to come together as a nation. You know, it takes all the way, it takes them 50 years or if not more to create a, a, this federal edifice that we know today. Whereas when we look at the, the other states, change happens much more rapidly. It's much more sudden and also the impact of the outcome of the, the civil wars in, in, in the German case, the Italian case, and also in their case, is a lot more dramatic. And I think that may also explain why the compromises that are reached in those three states aren't quite as, I wouldn't say weaker, but certainly less durable than in Switzerland because the change, because answers need to be found very quickly after those civil wars. And some of the answers aren't, aren't perfect and, and sort of that it's, it's a, it's a, you know, matter of trial and error and, and long-term adjustments. And of course, those societies actually face some continued, you know, massive challenges that continue to threaten the, the compromises and, and the, the political structures that are put in place after the Civil War. You know, when we think of reconstruction in America, uh, the reconstruction of a war-torn South, being completely devastated by the Civil War. Also, when we think of Italy and the you know, the various civil disturbances, also the, the complete disintegration of political structures in southern Italy, in Sicily, for example, as a result of the displacement of the Bourbon dynasty. I mean, those are massive challenges. And likewise for the, for the Prussians, as we know, there was a lot of hostility towards Prussia in many parts of Germany that is ongoing. And uh, so, yeah, I think Germany, Italy, and, and the United States their problem is that they are continuing to, to struggle with massive challenges while at the same time having to pacify the losers of those civil wars. Well, I would love to delve deeper into this subject, but we are already well over our time limit. Before we go, though, what is it that you're working on now? <laughs> um, my interests are quite varied. I work on, at the moment, I actually work on two projects. One concerns uh, the role of the Prussian monarchy and um, the various challenges it faced in the 19th century. And uh, my bigger project has to do with something entirely different, actually, prisoners of war, uh, and more particularly the, ro the role of parole d'honneur, um, the word of honor, as a transnational medium of communication. It, it, this may sound quite abstract, but uh, it is actually, in fact, quite a... Um, quite a sort of very much a case study that tries to answer a larger question about internationalism and sort of the transnational uh, connections between nations in the 19th century. So I use prisoners of war and particularly the right of officers and increasingly common soldiers to give their word of honor in captivity in return for certain privileges as a way to ask, so to what did actually honor, what did honor mean to those different, to different nations in Western Europe? It, how did they negotiate their differences, and to what extent does this also tell us something about um, other processes, like, for example, the spread of conscription, national identities, and particularly the question of individual agency? To what extent is, is you know is honor something that is held by individual soldiers, and to what extent is honor? the product of national identity. So I'm trying to answer all those interconnected and often very problematic questions and uh, hopefully try to uh, find a new way to answer the question why we go from, you know, an age of restrained warfare 
before the French Revolution, or what is often seen as a period of restrained warfare, to an increasing totalization of warfare in the 20th century. And then this is a period, the 19th century, is, is a period that hasn't really been uh, researched too well. We know more about uh, the Napoleonic Wars and about the First and Second World Wars than the period in the middle. But I argue that this period, the 19th century, is actually important to understand what comes uh, what comes after. Do you have anything published on it yet that we could look into, or can we expect something in the future? Yes, yes. <laughs> no, you certainly can. Um, there's an article that is currently being um, prepared for publication. It is, as you may have already written it, but it's being translated into French. I hope to turn this into uh, a, 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 an English-language article as well, a bit further down the line. I've done most of my research. I'm, I'm now working on a book manuscript, and the title will be something along the lines of the rise of fall, rise and fall of honor as a transnational me- medium of communication among prisoners of war. So you can certainly expect more publications on the subject in the not-too-distant future. Well, we wait with bated breaths, and hopefully we'll have you back when the time comes. But thank you for joining us today. Thank you. My pleasure. Well, that does it for us here at New Books in German Studies. Once again... We've been talking to Jasper Heinsen about his new book, Making Prussians, Raising Germans, A Cultural History of Prussian State Building After Civil War, 1866 to 1935. Definitely a valuable title for anyone occupied with the issues of state building after civil war and German national identity more broadly. Making Prussians, Raising Germans is available from Cambridge University Press as of 2017. And if you think you may be interested in picking up a copy, please consider using the link in the description. With that, I'd like to thank you for joining us and hope to see you next time. Until then.